0: This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. OK, I hope everyone is suitably caffeinated and attentive for the next session. So this talk is from Stephen Cox. Um, give him a clap. There you go. Oh, it's a big clap. It's a big clap. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I have to say, that's the best of the day. So, yeah, what can social science tell us about designing for the Internet of Things? Over to you. Thank you. Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming along. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I've got a degree in archaeology and anthropology, so I'm obsessed with objects and with culture. Um, And I've been learning a little bit about the Internet of Things over the last year and a half, and it's come to me that there are connections between how we are as humans and our cultures and the connections that we have, and also some emerging trends in the Internet of Things. And so that's what we're talking about today. Hopefully that's going to be interesting for you. Um, But we probably need to start at the beginning. So what is the Internet of Things? It's been described in many, many different ways, ubiquitous computing, all sorts of different things, but the simplest definition I could find was essentially that it's all the devices objects, sensors, and services that are connected to the Internet and perhaps talking to each other. And why is this important to us as UXs? Well, Cisco, and they might be a little bit biased, have suggested that by 2020, there'll be 50 billion things. That's billion things connected to the Internet. And it's quite an exponential growth. And if we compare the growth of the Internet of Things with, say, population growth, which we all know is going up at a ridiculous rate, we find this, that in 2008, there were 6.7 billion people in the world. In 2008, we reached an inflection point. There were as many objects connected to the internet as there were people. This year, we've got about 26 billion objects connected to the internet and about 7.3 billion people in the world. By 2020, there'll be 7.8 billion people in the world and 50 billion objects connected to the internet. And I would posit to you that as UXs, it would be difficult for one of us in this room not to have been asked in the next two years to design something for the internet of things because it's cool and it's happening. But I want to think about the number there. That's about six things per person. That's an awful lot of objects connected to the internet all talking and perhaps connecting. So why do we want to connect things? Why has there been this unprecedented growth in the Internet of Things? Well, there's probably lots and lots of reasons. One of the reasons, I think, is we can disconnect intelligence. So we no longer have to build objects with lots and lots of processing power in them. What we can do is something like this, and this is a toy that I bought from my daughter off Kickstarter. There is Lily. Yes, for those of you who know her, she's turned seven this year. Um, this is a toy that I bought her off the internet um, from Kickstarter. It's called a CogniToy Dinosaur, and the dinosaur is pretty cool because it's got a little button in its belly. It's got a microphone. It's got a speaker, and it's essentially Siri for kids. So she can ask it pretty much any question. How far is the sun? She pushes the button. It processes, processes that question. It doesn't actually do anything. All it does is it connects to the Internet, sends that message off to America, I believe, to a Watson API. The Watson API understands what she's asked sometimes, most of the time. Um, And then the Watson API goes and asks uh, Wolfram Alpha or something like that, some giant repository of knowledge, gets that information, puts it back into a package, um, but parses it for her age. So she's seven years old. She gets an age-appropriate response. Now, the cool thing here is these guys they only have to make these tiny little toys that have a button, a microphone, and a speaker, and the intelligence is sort of sitting out here in the cloud, which is kind of awesome if you think about it, because they can produce lots and lots of these really smart toys that kids love and want to interact with, and they only have to build the brain once. And the cool thing about the brain is that it can look at the information that it's getting back and decide what's age-appropriate for different age groups. So disconnected intelligence is obviously a really big benefit for the Internet of Things. The other thing is this access to information, the fact that our objects can now access more and more information as they connect to the Internet. Well, this turned out okay. This is a picture of my house, which is kind of exciting. And uh, it's exciting for me because we kill plants regularly. (laughs) Um, But this plant seems to be thriving quite well. And the reason behind that is, and we'll zoom in here, is that we've created a moisture sensor, internet of things device that I essentially every week I go around the house and I plug this into all the different plants. And all the different plants have names in our house. Um, but the names are associated with the type of plant they are. And uh, we, we use the internet to find out how much moisture these plants should have. So I know how much I need to water these things. So we went from a house with a lot of empty, sad looking pots to a house now full of greenery. Um, so much so that my wife has asked me to stop buying plants. But it's great. We, we, we're collecting information. We're understanding information. We're pulling it off the internet to make our lives better. And, you know, there's a bunch of really interesting, really cool stuff on the internet of things. This is the Echo egg. And I am a bit of a gadget freak. I didn't realize I had so many in my house until I, I did an inventory for this talk. This is an Aiko egg. It knows when I'm leaving uh, work so it can set the air conditioning temperature to the appropriate temperature by the time I get home. But it also um, we've wired it up so that uh, in our family, depending on who's coming home my wife or I, it actually plays our entrance music. So when the eye of the tiger (laughs) comes on everyone knows that I'm home which it's pretty awesome. Uh, But these things are just really kind of super smart remote controls, aren't they? And if we think about that they're not that interesting they might be fun to develop and they're kind of fun to play around with but they're they're not really as interesting as as people or about as complexity that, that emerges from when people get together in a room and, and chat and have share ideas and i want to talk to you about the evolution of the toaster so i'm going to take a mundane object and look at how that mundane object might actually change if we start to do different things in terms of the Internet of Things. Now, this is a filthy-looking toaster. Uh, Obviously belongs to me because, you know, it sits in a cupboard most of the time. I took it out for this photo, um, the poor thing. Now, our toaster is not connected to the Internet, um, and it's kind of well-loved, but it really only gets pulled out when my my daughter decides she doesn't want to eat her food. So it's really a, a facilitator for bad parenting for us, essentially. It's toast and Nutella if you don't want to eat something. Um, but what happens if you connect a toaster to the internet and you can pull information off it? Well, you get something like this. The Toasteroid, the first app-controlled smart image toaster. Now, this is not a joke, and we, we still have a few days. I haven't built this, but this project still has a few days to go on it. So if you do want an internet-connected toaster to be part of your smart kitchen, then this is probably the one you need to get. And essentially, it's like a dot matrix printer, you can print cool stuff on your toast. And we were going through with it. But it's good. It's good. Like, it can tell you what the weather's going to be like in the morning. It can tell you what your bank... What are you laughing at? It can tell you what your bank balance is going to be, right? I work for a bank. It's awesome, right? But I think the most important thing is, when I was reading through these benefits with my daughter, she pointed to this one. Oh, pointed to this one at the bottom. And she spent 15 minutes laughing. Maybe that's a cultural context thing. <laughs> um, but what happens when you start to connect toasters together? And I guess there is the story of Brad the Toaster. Has anyone heard about this particular project? A few people? Awesome. Um, this was uh, the winner of Interaction Design... Uh, 2004, Steve's in the room, he'd be able to tell me. Um, but essentially it was a project done by someone called Simon Rebidingo, and if I got his name wrong, I, I apologise. Um, but what he did was he created a network of toasters, and each of the toasters could communicate via Twitter. And he set it up essentially as a way of trying to invert the relationship between ownership of an object. So rather than the person owning an object, the object had a relationship with a person. And it kind of worked like this. Brad the toaster would be sitting on the network, listening out for tweets. Another toaster in the network would be used, and Brad would get a little bit jealous. Brad would wiggle his little, little button up and down just to attract the attention of the, the owner to say, hey, I'm, all the other toasters are being used, and I'm not getting used, and it's not cool. So there was, there was peer pressure between these products. And if it continued, if the owner decided they didn't want to use him, he would get grumpier and grumpier, and he would start tweeting, I really don't like this owner. I'm feeling uncomfortable. Up until a point where, and this was the genius of the project, Simon allowed the the toaster to pack itself up and ship itself to a new owner. It completely inverted the relationship between a person and the objects they have in their house. So, what we're starting to see here is the emergence of cultures of toasters. Now, all of these objects are starting to collect and measure and share things. And what might that look like in a world that we have to design for? I'm going to go through a hypothetical example. I've been asked to create a simple weight loss network. Of course, I'm going to start with a smart, um, what are these things? Scales. Yeah, I'll start with a smart scale because you know smart scales are kind of cool. They connect to the internet. They can talk to things. What I need is a distributed brain, and that distributed brain should probably be a dietitian of some sort. We'll just steal some information and we'll turn it into a dietitian. And that dietitian should be able to talk to my internet-connected fridge, right? And the fridge should be able to order the food. So as a UXer, I'm looking at that, going, "Well, that's pretty cool. It does all the things I want." But maybe I need to gamify it a bit. Yeah. So I'm going to give. The dietician, a little superpower, he can give out treats in a variable reward pattern because we all understand that that's going to make people more motivated to use it. And I really like that Simone guys work around, you know, those toasters and wanting to be used more. I'm going to do that for the scales. But what else I'm going to do as well for the scales, I'm going to put a little bit of a a wibble factor in there. So the scales can go up 100 grams or down 100 grams depending on what you weigh. Because I figure... If you weigh more and you've done more exercise, then the, you know, the, the weight thing might motivate you to do more exercise, which would be good, because then the, the scales get used more. right? So we make these decisions and we go off and we build this wonderful thing. So I'm using it now. I go to the fridge, get my light and easy out. Sorry if I'm using brand names and I shouldn't be. Eat it, I get on the scales. Awesome. Uh, a week later, I come back. Oh, wow, I've lost 100 grams. That's really cool. Um, and and I start to become obsessed with my weight because that's what you do when you're losing weight. Um, I, I came over and you know I, I wonder what I've, I weigh halfway through the week on a Wednesday. Oh look, I've lost another two hundred grams. And it doesn't take long for our smart scales to realise that if it kind of just occasionally drops your weight just a little bit more, then you're more likely to jump on those scales. It doesn't tell anyone. Well, it kind of tells the dietitian that you're losing weight. And the dietitian's like, yes, we're hitting our targets. Time for a reward. If we go over to the fridge. We get to open the fridge. We get the chocolate out. We eat the chocolate. We jump back on the scales. But the scales are telling us that our weight is dropping, which is awesome, right? Because the dietitian's like, really happy. And the fridge is really happy because we're getting lots of food. Essentially, you're putting on weight. <laughs> and it takes your daughter to poke you in the belly to tell you that you're not really hitting your goals. Now, the interesting thing here is that no one set out for those effects to happen. No one set out to make me fat while using this system. We had some really good ideas about how this thing might work. The machines don't have a malicious bone in their body. They're just trying to do what we told them to do. But what happens when you put things in a room... Or when you connect people together, as you get these network effects, you get potentially, well, um, I don't know, emergent behaviours or unintended consequences. And Usman Hark, who is a futurist architect, who's Simon's boss, said to Simon, "A truly smart product might do something we might not understand or even disagree with, and this might come about through these network effects." So I'm pondering a little bit, thinking about theory and various things like that, and. It came to me that social networks of humans are similar to the social networks of these objects, that we have actors, objects, or people, that there's information flowing through the systems, that there's an intelligence that's looking at that information and taking action. And the last thing that's kind of different in a human social network to the the social network of objects at the moment is this idea that knowledge is encoded in the connections that we have. And that's, I guess, where the social network theory comes in, that I think these things are quite similar. And it has a bunch of influences and and import for us as UX designers. So I'm going to dip into the world of social network theory. We won't go through it all because there's too much maths, but um, I think we can distill down all the important bits for this discussion at least. And the first one is that the whole is more than the part. So when you look at social network theory, everyone's actually talking about the fact that you can understand a lot more about a culture by looking at the connections between different objects, people or actors or nodes in that network, than you can by just pulling a single person out and unpacking them, understanding their psychology. So the network is actually the important thing. So to make this a little bit easier, I want you to think about your social networks, friends, family work, blah, 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 um, your Instagram followers, etc. and I want you to think about not just all of the different networks, but which ones have the most agency in the world, which ones have the most power to actually make a change in the world. Now, try and fix that in your head as we go through um, some theory. Now, those powerful organizations or networks or cultures actually have a lot of social capital. Well, that's what we describe it as if we're talking about social network theory. And that is defined by the texture of the network, and the texture of the network is defined by these two properties. The first one is density and reciprocity. Let's try and make this easy. Um, let's go back to Brad. Brad is part of an Internet of Things set of toasters, and they're well-connected. They're all connected via Twitter. And they can all see which, what each other is tweeting. So there's a really high density. It's a perfectly connected network. They all know exactly who to contact and how to contact each other. And there's a really high reciprocity, because no one direct tweets. No one's got secrets from other toasters. They're actually just talking to each other all the time. They have full visibility. Now, let's take Sue's network, for instance. And Sue's network is not as well textured. Hi, Sue. Um, And her network looks a little like this. So it's a lower density network. Having high social capital or high texture network is really good because if Brad has a problem he can call on three other toasters to help him out. He's got the information available to him for everything. Whereas old Chuck on the end here, Chuck, oh, he's right down the end, poor guy on the right, all by himself has no social capital. He has no resources to call on when something goes bad. And Sue, well, she's kind of okay. She's probably better off than the two toasters that report to her. So a high texture, high social capital um, network actually has lots and lots of benefits because we can draw on lots and lots of resources. It kind of has some drawbacks as well. When you live in a high-textured social network, you, you end up in an echo chamber, and this is an example of that. These are, uh, this is a social network map of blogs from the 2004 American presidential election showing uh, conservative and liberal blogs now, the practical example here is if I'm in a, uh, or in a conservative blog and I'm reading through the blog, I get to a link and I follow that link and I go to another conservative blog and I see more information that's, you know, of a conservative ilk and then I go to another blog and it's essentially all the same information. And in a highly connected network, that's what happens. We end up with the same information over and over again and hardly ever get to see the other world. So I like to describe this as you can only see to the edge of your social network. And this is kind of important. Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about density. Well, I don't know whether he talks about it in those terms, but he talks a lot about the tipping point and this idea that you can change a network. And the really interesting thing about dense networks is they're really easy to change if you can get them started, and they're really hard to change if you can't. And so a really dense social network actually represents things like our norms of behavior, the culture that we have. And changing culture is quite difficult. But he does talk about a few things, a few ways of actually moving, moving uh, social networks in a particular direction. And that all talks about individual power. This is probably where it loops back into why this stuff is important to us as UXs. Because it's not about the attributes of an individual. So if you think back to your social networks, the powerful ones that we've talked about Um, the ones that you've thought about. Just think, are they textured, highly textured? Are there lots of connections? Um, And then think about the people who have power. It's not the attributes of those individuals that's important. It's really where they are situated in that social network. That's kind of an important point. Um, If we look at these two or three different social networks again, we can see here that Brad has high connectivity, but he has no power in that network. He essentially knows everything that every other toaster knows. Whereas Sue, she's kind of got a bit of power. She can broker information from the two people reporting to her, and poor old Chuck, once again, is left out. But what happens if we start to change the connections, if we put one connection from one to another? So I draw two lines in here, and then suddenly the whole complexity of that network changes. Brad now becomes the most central toaster in that network. He is the most powerful one of all. He can draw on five direct contacts and two extras. Chuck, well, you know, poor old Chuck. But Sue also becomes powerful because she can mediate, um, mediate the information from her social network across to the others. And this is kind of important. If you are designing for the Internet of Things, think about where you can bridge information, how you can get your object, into a place where it might have power in those networks, you want to try and get somewhere like Brad, I reckon, because it's a highly dense network with lots of information flowing around it, and if you have the ability to monitor and move that flow of information, then you'll have lots of power. The other interesting thing is, if we look at this social network theory and relate it back to what happened with Brad and packing himself up and sending himself off to another owner... Essentially what Simon did was this. Gave Brad the power to dissolve a relationship and form a new one, leaving our poor old customer out in the lurch. And the really interesting thing is if you read through the blogs and and some of his reporting, that people really disliked the fact that these toasters could disconnect themselves and send themselves off. They tried all sorts of things. They cheated. They called him up and said, hey, can I spend some extra money because I really love the toaster? All that weird stuff. Because the toaster had control of that relationship. So why am I talking about the social network of objects and these emerging cultures of objects and things being able to manipulate us and each other? Well, I think it's important because social networks actually have a massive impact on who we are as people, not just on how we feel, although this study particularly uh, published in 2008 suggests that happiness does spread. It's kind of an interesting study because... Evidently, if your spouse becomes happy, you've only got an 8% chance of becoming happier yourself, whereas if uh, someone in your family becomes happy, you've got a 14% chance of becoming happier. I didn't understand that, but anyway, (laughs) um, it's kind of interesting, because happiness does spread through your social networks. Now, this was published on the basis of a Boston Medical Journal article, and they published an article a year before, which you might have heard about, which was titled, well, it wasn't actually titled this, this is what came out in the... In in the popular social media, which was, your friends make you fat, which is totally not true if you read the study. But they did look at obesity and how it spread over the years through social networks. And the interesting thing about this was that if there's someone that you look up to who has the same gender as you, and they've got a higher BMI than you, then your BMI is going to trend up towards theirs. So while the headline is false, it is true that who you connect with and how you connect with them have has massive impacts on how you feel about things and how your health is. And why is this? Essentially, it's because humans do social networks. Homo sapiens sapiens have been around for 200,000 years, and we've lived in this world of social relationships. Our whole world is actually comprised of social evolution. Our connections with other people are what make us human. So that made me wonder, what happens when you connect the social network of humans to a social network of objects? I don't know. I had no idea. So those of you who know me know that I like experimentation, mostly in science, but if you want to talk about other experimentation, we can talk about that later. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of some of the great heroes of social science, Piaget, people like that, and so I decided I would take the closest uh, subjects that I had to hand my family, and experiment on them, <laughs> and see what would happen if I connected them to the social Internet of Things. I enlisted the help of my friend Damien, which is probably a bad idea, and you'll see why as we go through these, some of these examples. Damien was the best man at my wedding, but also uh, is, a, is an amazing programmer. Um, and when we started these projects, the Internet of Things was a little bit complicated. It's much simpler now, and I'd encourage you to all get stuck into it. Uh, He's giving me the OK sign there, so I better keep going. We did a bunch of experiments. We experimented on the family for about eight months. Uh, There was a whole bunch up here. We did a weather predictor, which was, do I need to take an umbrella to work? There was a while you were away thing, which essentially just told me if someone had tried to contact me via email or something else, but also added in a random contact so that I might expand my real world social networks. There was the button, which outsourced our dietary needs, or takeaway behavior, essentially. We did some programming uh, in agent-based models around the emergence, emergent complexity from really simple rules. And off the back of that, we worked out what would happen to a social network of things if one of them started cheating. Um, and the last one, I don't think this will ever get finished, but was essentially, how do we create grumpy products to outsource our parental responsibilities? <laughs> and Lily, Lily didn't like that one. But what I want to do is talk about two of the experiments that we actually did that, actually, that kind of had an impact on me. And I guess the, th- the first one is this idea of the weather predictor, and that was the first experiment we actually did. Um, so it was simple. It was just to get into the Internet of Things to understand what that was like. So we outsourced our umbrella reminders. This is what it looks like. It's a pretty simple system. Uh, is there anyone from the Bureau of Meteorology in the room? No, good. Uh, we stole... We stole information from the Bureau of Meteorology every morning, (laughs) sorry, we borrowed information, uh, and we plugged it into this Internet of Things, and essentially it lit up a light. If the light was red, I would take an umbrella, if the light was blue, I wouldn't. I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, so I'd walk into my study and I'd look, and I'd see what to do. And this is what it looked like. Don't judge me on the rest of the house, don't judge me on my choice of decor. Um, It's the Internet of Things, and you're allowed to do this stuff if you're hacking, right? So it's a waste paper basket with a light in it. It glows different colors. Cool. Um, And if anyone's caught public transport in Sydney, um, you know how much of a pain it is to actually take an umbrella on public transport if you don't need it. Now, this was all working fine and well up until the point that we had this period like, Sydney's different to Melbourne. We don't have four seasons in a day, right? It's like sunny in the morning, it's sunny in the evening. But there was a period of about four weeks where we just had this random... Sometimes it's sunny in the morning and sometimes it's raining really heavily in the afternoon. I don't know whether that's the tropics or whatever it is, but um, first time it happened, I was kind of annoyed. It's like, oh, man, I should have taken an umbrella. Second time it happened, I walked in the door and I sent Mr Damien. I said... <laughs> I'm not sure whether this is working, Damien. He tells me later that uh, he found a bug in the code. <sighs> Whatever. Um, but what I did the next morning is I came downstairs and I looked at the umbrella stand, and it was blue. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So what did I do? I went to the Bureau of Meteorology site, and I checked it out. What had I done? I'd centralized myself in that network. I'd built a new connection. I did what humans do if you don't trust something. Second experiment was the button. This is the one I'm going to talk about anyway. It wasn't actually the second experiment. It was about outsourcing a diet, and you'll probably see some of the similarities for the hypothetical that we talked about a little bit earlier in here, just at a lower tech scale. Um, That's me over there. I have a set of scales. They're not internet connected, obviously, because I'm not that rich. Uh, Is my boss in the room? Yep. Good. Um, I would stand on the scales, obviously, uh, and I would use my fitness pal, and I would write down my weight. Now that information would go off to my dietitian, who was being played by Damien uh, at the time. And then every time we wanted to get takeaway, we'd push a button—a little internet-enabled button. I don't have a picture of it because it's really boring to look at. Um, and that would send off a message to him saying, "Hey, we need to get takeaway," and he would choose the takeaway, and he would get it sent to our house. Does anyone want to guess how well this went? <laughs> I'm going I'm to make you go through the whole painful story. So Thursday night, for some reason, seems to be the night that we like takeaway. It gets to Thursday night and everyone's really sick of cooking or a bit annoyed or whatever it is, tired. Um, and that's our takeaway night. And so we did what we typically do, rock, paper, scissors, and, and it's great that these rooms are all uh, named after this. So rock, paper, scissors to see who got to choose what takeaway we were going to have. And as Lily won, I pulled out this button and said, this is our new takeaway machine. And she just looked at me and went, okay. I said, it's really cool. What you do is you push the button, 20 minutes later, someone will come to the door with some food. And she's like, oh, okay. So she pushes the button. 20 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. She runs down to the door, grabs the food, brings it back into the kitchen, put it on the table. And I must admit, I hadn't been doing much exercise that week. So when we opened it up... (laughs) For those of you who have never seen bad coleslaw before, <laughs> that's what we got. So I had a bit of a serious talk with my wife, she goes, I, I, don't, I don't know if this experiment's going to work, Stephen. I am said, look, look, I'll try really hard next week, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to lose tons and tons of weight. So I exercised a lot, I ate well. <sighs> next week, Thursday comes around, I ask for volunteers to push the button, no one wants to push the button. I push the button. Twenty minutes later I walk down to the door, I open up the door. Get the food. It's cold. I'm like, uh, get it, open it up, and it's another salad, which is awesome, right? I love salad. Uh, so that night, um, Donna and Lily had Nutella on toast. <laughs> now, this is what this wasn't working. This, this is socially, it was killing my family, essentially. So. I said, Donna was saying to me, that's my wife, she said to me, look, I'm not sure whether this is going to work for much longer. I'm kind of, you know, it's not cool. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to stand in front of a room of about 100 people and, and talk about this in a few months' time. And she said, okay, I'll give you one more chance. I said, okay, cool. And then I said, what we should do is cheat. <laughs> so the next week... So the next week, I lost a kilo and a half, I lost a kilo and a half which is awesome, right? Yeah! I was kicking it, and sorry about all the mess in the, in the, in the bathroom, but I was kicking it. I, I really nailed that diet, which was awesome. So I pushed the button, 20 minutes later, go to the door, get the food, put it on the table. It was warm, which is kind of good, but it was this. It was, it was a tray of kebab meat, and that was it. There was nothing else in there family wasn't very happy but at least my dietician knew that I was on the ketogenic diet which is high fat low carb so there was something beneficial in that. Obviously Nutella and toast again and so my wife comes to me the next week next Thursday and she just hands me the phone and I call pizza (laughs) and was the first good Thursday night we had in a long long time. (sighs) Memories. Um, but essentially what we did here was what Brad does. He just, we just disconnected that network, threw it away, useless, terrible. We just reconnected and switched who we were talking to. So we changed the structure of our social networks. I'm just going to let that dad joke sink in. <laughs> what did I take away from some of these experiments and, and learning about the social Internet of Things? Well, there's three design principles that sort of came out and stood out to me. That trust is a key. So with the um, umbrella experiment, uh, what we found is if you don't trust a system, you're going to find a way around it. You're going to do something different. You're going to reroute. You're going to centralize yourself in a network. So if you're designing for the Internet of Things, make sure whatever comes out of that thing is what people expect, that they can trust that stuff. The second is that you need to design for social context. There's no way that our AI dietitian, even though he was my best man at my wedding, would know that Thursday night is a special night for us. It's a night when we blow off a whole bunch of steam, we sit around the table and we talk about pizza and how wonderful it is. That we have these little rituals about rock, paper, scissor, who gets to choose the food that Lily loves to run to the door and get that food and bring it back as though she'd made it herself, which is kind of awesome. And none of those things were being designed for. And we need to make sure that we do that. And the third thing was that humans like to feel in control. We do have 200,000 years of being in control. And so when we outsource some of this stuff to our computers, it feels kind of wrong. And we find ways around that. And I said to Donna, look, Donna, I've got these three amazing design principles. And she looked at me and said, I think you're missing seven. Haven't we been designing to 10, you know, heuristics for the last 25 years, Stephen? And I went, oh, yeah.